This week, a friend and colleague turned me on to an episode of NPR's This American Life, entitled Baby Scientist with Faulty Data. It begins with a story of a father talking about the first time his four-year-old daughter asked about the meaning of Christmas. Well, he told her that it was a celebration of the birth of a person named Jesus, and his curious daughter wanted to know everything about this person. So he bought a children's Bible for them to read together, and she loved it. She wanted to know everything. And as they read about Jesus, his daughter would ask, what does the word teaching mean? The father said, well, it means that Jesus had a message for the world, which was love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Then one day they were driving past a big church, and out in front was an enormous crucifix. The four-year-old said to her father, who's that? The father realized, wow, I guess I've never told her that part of the story. So he said, well, that's Jesus. I forgot to tell you the ending. So the message that he had of love was so radical and unnerving to the Roman government, they decided to kill him because he was tr too troublesome. About a month later, after Christmas was over, the daughter's preschool celebrated MLK holiday. So the father took his four-year-old girl out to lunch, and they were, he was reading the newspaper, which had a big picture of Martin Luther King Jr., and his daughter said, who's that? The father explained, that's Martin Luther King Jr., and he's why you're not in school today. This is, this is the day we celebrate his birthday and his life. The daughter asked, well, well who's he? The father said, well, he was a preacher. Suddenly, she interrupted him and said, for Jesus? Well, yes, the father said, but, but he had a message too. And the father struggled to carefully form his words, knowing it would be the first time his daughter would ever hear this. So he said, well, his message was that you should treat everybody the same, no matter what they look like. And she thought about that for a moment. His four-year-old daughter said, well, that's what Jesus said. The father replied, well, I never really thought about it that way, but yeah, I guess... That's Jesus' message, too. Four-year-old thought about it again for a minute, pondering that, and then she looked up at her father and said, Daddy, did they kill him, too? Daddy, did they kill him, too? A four-year-old little girl, probably not even old enough to read yet, arrived at a deeper understanding of Jesus and our faith than most of us will in our entire lives. I should email Ira Glass, though, because the title Baby Scientist with Faulty Data is slightly off. There was nothing faulty about the data this four-year-old girl was given by her father. A better title for this story would be something like Baby scientist with accurate data reveals our faulty faith. Any faith that does not come to understand what this four-year-old girl amazingly came to understand is indeed faulty. What do I mean? I mean our faith, if you think about it, it's based on a humbling and harrowing truth that few of us want to talk about the truth that the message of Jesus of love God and love neighbor, of do unto others as you would 
have them do unto you has always been a threat to the powers that be and can easily get you persecuted, arrested, tortured, even killed, as it has so many who have proclaimed it. A four-year-old little girl got it. But do we get it? Daddy, did they kill him too? She asks. And the answer to that question is what generates and animates our faith and mission as the followers of Jesus. Yes, my daughter, they killed him too. The story of this father and his daughter provides a striking contrast at this moment to many parents in America today who've been stirred up into a fabricated panic about this thing called critical race theory. The absurdity of this panic is mind-blowing, yet it reveals the lengths we white people will go to remain in denial about the history of slavery and avoid taking any responsibility for the systemic racism that plagues our country. But our denial about racial justice is not the most absurd part or aspect of this pandemic and panic. The most absurd thing is that the very people making the loudest and most aggressive pleas to ban critical race theory from school are Christians. Christians are the ones saying things like, our children are too young to learn about slavery. Our student learning should not result in discomfort or guilt or anguish or any other form of psychological distress. Now wait just a second. What do they teach about Jesus in their churches? What do they say happened to Jesus? Aren't these parents also teaching their children that Jesus was arrested and tortured and executed by the Roman government? Doesn't the crucifixion cause children discomfort, guilt, anguish, and distress? Why not? Are they not too young to learn about Jesus? Shouldn't we also ban the teaching of the gospel to children as well? Teaching the gospel to children might cause them to develop anti-Roman sentiment. You know, they should be proud of their empire, right? Teaching the gospel to children might cause them to think that the Romans were violent and oppressive by nature simply because they're Romans, and that's not fair, is it? The gospel reads a little like critical Roman theory, which sounds racist and maybe it should be banned. It could be harmful to teach our children to love your neighbor as yourself or do unto others as you have them do unto you. Didn't that saying come from a poor Jewish man who was tried and convicted as a blasphemous charlatan, seditious rabble rouser and treasonous insurrectionist? Why should we trust him? I know it sounds absurd when I say it here in a holy place, but the very Christians passionately working to whitewash American history and our children's education are the same who've already whitewashed the gospel, removing all the blood and guts, extracting all the sacrifice and pain, expunging all the context and politics, eliminating all the power and empire, erasing all the accountability and responsibility, cutting out all the death and the cross, it's no surprise. They're doing the same thing to history and our children's education that they've done to the gospel. The hypocrisy and absurdity of it knows no bounds. 
Oh, but then there's Mark 6. What are they going to do with the story of John the Baptist? You, you can try to subdue Jesus' prophetic ministry by manipulating him into a healing pastor of love and chocolate kittens and rainbows, but there's no way to do that to John the Baptist, is there? You can try to turn Jesus' death into some kind of magical thing he had to suffer in order to save the world from sin, but you can't do that to the death of John the Baptist. You can try to turn Jesus into the divine Son of God so that you can worship him instead of following him, but you can't do that to John the Baptist. You can try to make Jesus' message of love into something positive and cuddly, nice and non-threatening, apolitical, but you can't do that to the message of John the Baptist. John defies all of our attempts at whitewashing and our desires for a watered-down gospel. He and his message are clearly prophetic clearly political, clearly anti-imperial, clearly threatening to the status quo, clearly the story of a revolutionary freedom fighter's death at the hands of the powers that be, which may be why we just don't see a lot of evangelical sermons or books about John. The wild and woolly, camel-hair-wearing, leather-belt-strapping, locust-and-honey-eating, baptizer's story is extremely important. Because we must remember that John was Jesus' only mentor. And not only did Jesus inherit his message of the kingdom of God from John, but he followed directly in John's footsteps, challenging the brood of vipers and snakes known as the Pharisees, scribes, and priests, and speaking truth to power like Caiaphas and Herod and Pilate and Caesar. Jesus followed in John's footsteps precisely and prophetically, preaching love to the point of being arrested and executed just like his mentor. Jesus' message was the same as John's, and he was killed for his message just like John. Which means the precious and precocious little four-year-old girl from this American life could have asked the same question about John as she did about Jesus and Martin Luther King. Daddy, did they kill him too? And the answer would have been yes. Yes, honey, they killed him too. This is what often happens to the prophets of love in our world. Jesus may have even had John in mind later in Matthew 23 when he proclaimed, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets And you decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if I had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. But, Jesus said, you testify against yourselves because you are the descendants of the people who murdered the prophets. And I took a deep breath and said, aren't we all? Aren't we all the descendants of those who killed the prophets? And the reason King Herod had John arrested is far more complex than it seems in the story. Mark tells us John had been prophesying against Herod because he married his sister-in-law while his brother Philip was still alive, which of course was illegal at the time. But John was not a first century version of an evangelical marriage police who believe that the only sins that matter are sexual indiscretions or acts that do not conform to patriarchal southern family values. See, marriage in those days was not about love, but politics, political alliances specifically. And Herod was already married to the daughter of the king of Nabatea, who would have been humiliated if Herod took a new wife. 
Herod's action in this story meant that the alliance between Judah and Nabatea would be broken and a violent war would ensue, which is exactly what happened. You can look it up in 36 AD. John was protesting the impending war that Herod had brought upon his people, which was going to hurt the poor the hardest, the way that war always does. He was challenging Herod's reckless politics, his selfishness, and not his family values. And that's what got him arrested. King Herod didn't feel like he could kill John outright. He was a righteous and beloved person. So he planned to let John rot in jail for the rest of his life. That was until that fateful day, Herod's birthday. When Herod's new wife let her daughter dance for her father as a birthday surprise. What a party it must have been. I don't know if you noticed. All the leaders of Galilee were there for this party. All of Herod's officials. Now, I know that the right Reverend Mia McLean got you all stirred up last week with her singing and preaching. Telling you to dance like David danced. Yes. But I noticed that she didn't tell you to dance like Herodias danced. Ah, notice that she didn't say that all dancing is not the same. Not all dancing in the Bible is good, is it? Not all dancing is about remembering our bodies. Some dancing is about dismembering the prophet's bodies. Some dancing leads to beheadings. Not all dancing disrupts the status quo. Not all dancing is liberative and life-giving. Some dancing is oppressive and death-dealing. Some people dance on the graves of children or dance for the heads of prophets. Some people dance for the wrong reasons. Some people have birthday dance parties while the world is at war, while people are suffering at their door, while we have no concern for the poor. Herodias' dance in this story was the finest form of political distraction, diverting Herod's attention and ours by using his male gave to achieve her mother's goal of eliminating John. The king, though, was no innocent fool in this story. He and his wife were playing a grotesque political game with John's life, a game that ended up with John's head on a platter and presented to her mother as a disturbing and horrifying trophy. The story ends with John's disciples coming, sadly, to retrieve the body of their teacher. And it seems at the end of this story as if all hope has been lost, as if we should be falling into despair. But that's not the point of this story. This story, you may look back, was not told in real time. It was an aside that Mark provides us between the sending of the twelve and the feeding of the five thousand. It's not part of the narrative. It's a backstory that is not just providing us information about John's execution in the past, but trying to make a point about the future, about Jesus. The difficulty for the reader like us is that the good news comes so very early at the beginning of the story and not the end that we forget about it by the time we get to the sad ending. But it's the first two verses of this text where all the hope and power resides, the hope and the power of resurrection. Mark was trying to tell us that this was the moment in Jesus' ministry that King Herod had first heard about him. And some were saying that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. 
And for this reason, the powers that were at work in Jesus were from John. But others said it was Elijah, and others said it was a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Herod's statement here was not simply a window into his thoughts and feelings. This was a true confession. Born from the mouth of a king who was haunted haunted by his decision to execute an innocent man. And Herod was right. John had indeed been raised. Like Banquo, the ghost rising from the dead to haunt his murderer Macbeth in Shakespeare's epic tale, Herod was convinced that Jesus was John come back from the grave to haunt him and hold him accountable for his unjust actions. And guess what? Herod was right to be afraid. Jesus was the resurrection of John and the resurrection of Elijah. And that's the good news of this story. That's the gospel in this story. That's the hope in this story. The good news is that the tyrants and the murderers of this world will be haunted by their victims. Our hope is that even though the empire might execute the prophets there will always be a resurrection. As Obi-Wan Kenobi famously said to Darth Vader in the very first Star Wars movie ever released, aptly titled A New Hope, if you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. If you strike me down, I will become more powerful than you can possibly imagine. John the Baptist could have and may have said these words to Herod. If you kill me, someone more powerful than me will rise in my place. That's the good news of the resurrection. Resurrection is not just what happened to Jesus or a magical transformation of our bodies or the experience of going to heaven when we die. Resurrection is the hope that if you chop off the head of a prophet that God will raise up something more powerful in its place because that's the way God works. Resurrection is the uprising of freedom and liberation. Resurrection is the way God and creation deals with the problem of death and violence by giving birth to something stronger and more potent and more resilient. Resurrection is the reality that the blood of the martyrs are the seeds of the church. Resurrection is the hope that if you strike down John, God will raise up Jesus in his place. It is the truth that if you strike down Jesus, God will raise up an entire church, an entire movement in its place. Chairman Fred Hampton was preaching resurrection when he said, you can jail a freedom fighter, but you can't jail freedom. You can murder a liberator, but you can't murder liberation. You can kill a revolutionary, but you can't kill the revolution. That is the epitome of resurrection faith. Jesus was the resurrection of John the Baptist, and Jesus' followers were the resurrection of Jesus. They followed in his footsteps. They shared his message of love. They stood up against the powers that be in the Roman Empire. They challenged the domination systems, and they protested against the forces of death and oppression in the world. They tried to build a beloved kingdom, and guess what? Many of them were executed by the Roman Empire as well. Some legends say it. Every one of the 12 disciples was also crucified. 
just like their teacher. And even though we are followers of Jesus today in an age of whitewashed history and a whitewashed gospel, the real good news can always be reclaimed. Like the disciples who became the resurrection of Jesus or the resurrection, we too can become the resurrection in this world. We can become the resurrection of Jesus or the resurrection of another prophet, of Elijah, or one of the many prophets of old. It doesn't have to be Jesus according to this story. It could be Mahatma Gandhi, Edith Stein, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King Jr., Fred Hampton, Oscar Romero, John Lennon, Harvey Milk, Marsha P. Johnson, one of the many freedom fighters who've been executed. Or it may not be someone who was executed, just someone who's already gone before us. Pauli Murray, Mamie Till, Diane Nash, Fannie Lou Hamer, Ella Baker. Or it might be one of our parents or grandparents, ancestors or forebearers, or anyone who fought for freedom and emancipation and taught the world to love God and love neighbor, to do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. We are the hope for the resurrection of their lives and their message of love for the world. We can make birthday beheadings into birthday resurrections if we want to. It's up to each one of us and our church to decide which prophet we will follow, which prophet of love will we embody, which prophet of liberation will be raised in our lives. Who will we become the resurrection of? The poor little girl and her father from this American life were right about the first part of the gospel. If it is to be good news, the gospel must always begin with the same question. Daddy, did they kill him too? But the father thought he'd finished the story of Jesus by stopping at the cross. But the cross is not the end of the story, is it? No, the story doesn't end right there or stop with Jesus' execution and death. Death is never the end. Daddy, did they kill him too, is not the conclusion. Because the answer to that question is always, yes, they killed him too, but God raised him from the dead. Yes, they killed John, but God raised Jesus in his place. Yes, they killed Jesus, but God raised a church in his place. Yes, they killed Martin, but God raised a movement in his place. Yes, they killed the prophets, but God raised up a new generation to take up their mantle and be the resurrection in the present tense, and that's us. This is the hope we cherish. This is the faith we have to hold. This is the moment and the movement we make. This is the life we are called to lead. So whenever anybody asks, did they kill them too? May we always answer, Yes, dear, they killed them too, but that's not the good news. The good news is that after they were killed, God raised us. Amen.